This morning, the title of my message is Remain with God. Remain with God. Um, two, really, two simple points this morning, and the text is fairly straightforward. I'm going to try to be straightforward as well and just let it speak to you. The first point is very simply the instruction, um, and then the second point is the illustrations. The instruction and the illustrations. And I think that um, this message, as all of Scripture is, will be relevant to our hearts today, just as it was in the first century. Let's take a look at the instruction this morning as we continue here in our study in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 7, we've come right to the middle of the chapter, and uh, we're going to very quickly move through the rest of it. Uh, Just one more message, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday to finish out chapter 7. Uh, when we return to the, the subject of singleness and marriage um, in next week's sermon. But right here in the middle, we see the instruction. And having talked about the challenging circumstances of marriage as we looked at last Sunday, Paul gets right to the point of the whole chapter in verse 17. Look at it. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Paul's challenging the idea that, you know, if I could just change my circumstances, everything would be great. If I could just change all the external factors that are a part of my life, everything else would just fall into place. And what Paul is focused on here is this important truth, and it's this. The real and necessary change is one that is internal. It's a change of attitude rather than external, what we might call a change of atmosphere. The change that we need, this is Paul's message to us, the change that we need is internal, one of attitude, not external, one of our atmosphere around us. Now, this is not a new kind of instruction for the Apostle Paul. Uh, When he wrote to Timothy in his first letter to him, he says in 1 Timothy 6.6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And really, this message this morning, stuck right here in the middle of chapter 7, is really a message about contentment. Um, To be contented is a pretty rare thing in Paul's day and in our day. Some of you will remember the name John D. Rockefeller, who was the great oil tycoon of a century or two ago. He was once asked how much money was enough to make him happy, and he had a famous answer. Do you remember? Yeah, just a a little more, right? One more dollar, one more, one more. Just a little more than he had. And it's easy for us to look at a man like that and point our finger and say, he's not content, But the truth is, Christians often don't stand out in our culture the way that they should. Because even though we should be fine examples of contentment, even in the church, we find some of the most malcontented, discontented people anywhere else. Grumbling, groaning, complaining, unsatisfied. And Paul wants to address this to the Corinthians. He wants to address it to us as well. This is an important principle to Paul. Let me show you how I know it's an important principle to Paul because he states it 
three times in this passage. Those of you who read through this passage before this morning, you probably noticed that. In verse 17, he leads off with the principle. Each person should lead the life the Lord assigned to him. In verse 20, smack dab in the middle of the passage, he comes back to it. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And at the end of the text, verse 24, he puts a bookend. He summarizes his argument by stating it again. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. He says it three times in this one paragraph. It's important. So what does he mean? Well, think through this. This is what John Calvin wrote on the subject. He wrote this. Paul is not categorically denying the possibility of changing our circumstances. He's not saying you should never change anything in your life. But what he's seeking to do, Calvin says, is to check those impulses, uncontrolled by reason, which drive many here and there so that they are confused by their constant restlessness. You know anybody like that? Just restless. They just go from one thing to another, to another, to another. They never find that sense of purpose, that sense of placement. They're just restless. They're confused. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they should do. They don't know where they should be, and those impulses are running rampant in them. And John Calvin, writing here back at the time of the Reformation, says Paul is checking, trying to check those impulses. He's trying to wean us off of that. The Corinthians haven't been able to determine, it seems, whether if they're married, they should stay married. Or if they're single, They should stay single. It seems like they can't work out what they should do, so Paul tells them what to do. Now, the temptation to change their situation was obviously a very real one on the basis of these Corinthians are coming out of a pagan culture and they're becoming converted. They're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So some are using that to try to justify forsaking their marriages because now they're married to someone who doesn't share their faith. Somebody else might say, I have grounds for divorce, so I should be divorced. Paul says, no, you better think it out. And this also spills over into matters of our daily employment and into our social relationships. And that's exactly where Paul's going to go here in just a minute. I also, I would want to say up front here that Paul is not urging believers to stay in occupations or remain in circumstances that are obviously immoral or illegal, right? The the, the Bible will not contradict itself in that way. For example, if someone was involved in the prostitution business, which was rampant in the city of Corinth, as we've seen and as Paul has addressed in chapters 5 and 6, Paul is not suggesting that they stay involved in that dirty business. That would be to put Scripture against Scripture. And that is not what Paul is up to here. And that's why we, when, we, when we study the Word of God, one of the key rules for interpreting the Bible is that we always look at the context, chapter by chapter, book by book, section 
by section. We don't pull a verse out of a context to make a point or to drive our own agenda, right? And Paul's certainly not doing that here. Rather, what he is doing is he's calling the Corinthians and he's calling us, Heather Hillians, um, to, to, he's calling us where we are and, and where they are, and, and he's calling us to be a Christian there. Wherever you are, whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever circumstance of life you are in, be a Christian there. That's what Paul wants to tell us today. In order to understand why that is so important, he points out three things in verse 17. Look at it. First, he points out that God is sovereign in His assignments. Do you see that? Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. The Lord has assigned to him. God is ruling. He is providentially ruling, lovingly ruling in the issues of our lives, the place of your occupation, the nature of who and what you are doing today. And this is an important principle, especially when you think about that, that we live in such a transient society and the temptation is always to, to kind of jump ship to get to another port. So another place, we want to go to another uh, place, we want to do it another day, we want to get another job, we want a different wife or another husband or a different kind of relationship. And Paul says, listen, God is sovereign. And He has assigned places to you in life. And stay in that place. Stay in that place. Second, he points out, while the assignments the Lord may differ, the call of God is the same. Look, at, look as he continues in verse 17. The, that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And this calling is the call of salvation, which is very clear here in this passage. It, the, the word call comes up, I think, eight times in this paragraph. And it's referring to the great salvation of the Lord. We all share the same calling of God. But... We differ in the places that he has assigned us. Third thing he tells us in verse 17 is he's not singling out the Corinthians and he's not singling out the Heather Hillians. I don't know why I said that again. Let's hope that doesn't become regular in my vocabulary. He's not singling out the Corinthians or us for this instruction because he says at the end of verse 17, this is my rule in all the churches. This is an important principle for all believers. That's the instruction. Do you understand it? It seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? It's not complicated. There's no mystery there. God has assigned you a place. Stay there. Stay in it. Be a Christian there. You've been called. You've been saved by the Lord. Now let's go to the illustrations. And we see this in verses 18 and 19 and then 21 to 23. How would, we how would we apply the instruction that Paul just gave us? Well, he helps us out. And I'm thankful that he helps us out. He gives us two illustrations. Not one, but two. He doesn't choose trivial, low-key issues. He chooses critical ones. 
He chooses circumcision and slavery, two of the most divisive issues in the society of the early church. Circumcision was the greatest religious barrier in Paul's day. Slavery was the biggest social division. Paul's approach is radical. Look what he says in verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Now, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, let's get on to the next point. It doesn't have quite the same impact. But if we'd been sitting in the Corinthian context, listening to this letter being read, you would have just been blown away by what Paul said. Because some of us in this church came from a Jewish background. Some of us in this church came from a Gentile background. And both of us knew one thing. Circumcision is a huge issue. It's a big enough issue to divide believers. And Paul is saying something about it. He says, lead the life that God's assigned you. And here's a helpful way to apply that principle. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Paul's saying, if you were uncircumcised when you became a believer, fine. You don't need to get circumcised. Were you already circumcised when you came to faith in Christ? Then fine, stay that way. Don't try to tamper with it. And you say, "Mm, how would you tamper with that? (laughs) I know, I asked myself that question too. Think about this for a minute. In the Jewish mind, circumcision was basically everything. It it was the physical mark, seal, identification that you're in the people of God. You're part of the covenant. So in the Jewish mind, an individual who remained uncircumcised outside the blessing of God outside the people of God. And so there was this great push in Paul's day by people that called themselves Judaizers to make Gentile believers get circumcised and a whole bunch of other laws that they wanted them to follow too. And Paul addresses them and says, you have no right to do that. Now on the other hand, think about this from a Gentile's perspective. They look down on people who were getting circumcised, believers, because to them, circumcision was the mark belonging to a religion of a people who were despised by them. So on the one hand, there's people saying, this is so important, you must get circumcised. And on the other hand, there are people saying, this is horrible, you must not get circumcised. And it was a cause for great division in the early church. What does Paul mean by remove the marks of circumcision? Well, this is as far as I'm going to go with it. A commentator named Leon Morris wrote this, and he's coming from the Gentile perspective on this, and this is what he wrote. He says, they, the Gentiles, saw it as a sign of enlightenment when a Jewish youth, by undergoing a surgical operation, tried to efface to remove, destroy, rub out, however, the marks of his circumcision in order to take his place in the wider world of Hellenistic Greek culture. So if a Jew tried to get rid of his marks of circumcision surgically, however they could do that at the time, 
and I won't get into that. Um, the Gentiles thought, that's great. That's enlightened. They're getting up into modern day. This topic was a big deal. It didn't matter if you were a Jew. didn't matter if you were a Gentile. And Paul comes along and says, it doesn't matter. Lead the life that God has assigned to him. If you've come to faith in Christ from a Jewish background, thank God for that and continue on in your journey. If you have come from a Gentile background to your faith in Christ, then just continue along that journey as well. In, the, in Paul's mind, this issue was a distraction. He says it's not to take the place of obedience. Look how he finishes verse 19. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but, here's what does count, keeping the commandments of God. And when he addresses the same issue to the church in Galatia, he wrote there in Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, creation. The real issue is not what you are externally are you getting this the real issue is not what you are on the outside it's not what you are by means of your background it's not what you are in terms of your religious heritage but that you've become a new person in jesus christ that's the issue and the evidence that you have become a new person in jesus christ is that for the first time in your life you actually can keep the commands of Jesus Christ. And if you love him, you will, Jesus said. So these huge hurdles which existed in the Corinthian church between the Jews and the Gentiles were not to be removed by external human activity. You know how they're going to be removed? By internal divine activity. So there's a lesson here. And the lesson that we should learn from this, I think, is that God is able to overcome barriers as he works in the heart of both Jew and Gentile. And he did. He did it in the early church. And he can still do it today. Let's bring it into our contemporary setting. God does not need black people to try to make themselves white. Or white people to try to make themselves black or Hispanic people to try to make themselves Caucasian, or Caucasian people to try to make themselves Hispanic. God established diversity in our world for his own sovereign purposes. He's in charge. He designed it this way. And any attempts to try to bring about reconciliation from the outside in is doomed to fail the jews could not do it by effacing the marks of their heritage saying it politely again and the gentiles could not do it by assuming the marks of the jewish heritage but god was able to do it by changing the heart of the jew and making him love the gentile and by changing the heart of the Gentile and making him love the Jew. And brothers and sisters, it is only... Now listen, 
I'm going to say a couple dogmatic things here, and you can argue with me later if you want. It is only in the church where there is hope in our culture for any kind of harmony which men and women are longing for today. Only Jesus can change people's hearts. And when will there be harmony among the races? Where will it be possible that the rich and the poor walk together? When, When will it be that the young and the old and people from all kinds of different educational backgrounds can be united? You know where? In the body of Christ. That's where. In the church. The church has a message to proclaim that will bring about a transformation that the world cannot replicate, cannot accomplish, no matter what they try, no matter how they do it. If you stop and think about this in our culture, surely you must see as I do the fallacy of the church trying to use the world's agenda to bring about what can only be created by the power of the gospel. Normally, when a person becomes a Christian, they're not supposed to change their job, right? I was just talking about this with my my wife last night. You know, if you're a plumber and you become a Christian, um, what difference does it make when you go to work on Monday? You still do plumbing, right? And, And if you're a lawyer and you're a Christian lawyer, your occupation doesn't change, right? Don't these verses have something to say to that? Lead the life to which the Lord has assigned to you and to which God has called you. This is my rule in all the churches. God can deal with the issue of race. God can deal with the issue of status. God can deal with the issue of education. It's not dealt with by some kind of pseudo-communism. You can try that. But it doesn't work. You can't make everybody the same. God never intended it to be so. He loves the diversity. Now that was in the religious realm. Paul now goes into the social realm and starts meddling over there and picks up another scorpion by the tail. Look what he says in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. We've heard that before. 21, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Now for again, you're sitting here this morning, you're like, okay, that's cool. I understand that. Let's go on to the next verse. But if you, what if you were a slave in the first century, sitting in the church at Corinth, hearing those words read? Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. The point that Paul's making in both of these illustrations, circumcision and now slavery, is that despite our circumstances, it is still necessary, it is still possible to live a faithful Christian life, to be obedient to Christ. The context of slavery in the Roman Empire of Paul's day I don't know if you realize this, but it was such that about 50% of the population 
were regarded as slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, some of the slaves were in bad circumstances. But you also need to realize that a lot of those that were considered slaves in the Roman Empire were better educated, more skilled, more literate than even freed people. The slaves were doctors, teachers, accountants, all kinds of professionals in the Roman Empire. And Paul says again, the issue in life is not that you change your external circumstances. The issue in life is that God changes your heart and the attitude that we find there. So if you were a slave when you were called, don't let it bother you. Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Some of you may have different translations um, here, and even in the ESV there's been an update. Some of you may have the word slave in there rather than bondservant. Some of you may have another word. But uh, it all means the same, that you uh, you owe a debt to your master. And uh, and this this is something that uh, they didn't take lightly in the first century. And the point that Paul's trying to make here is this. Only sin can keep us from obeying and serving the Lord. Your circumstances cannot. Now, if you notice, I don't know if you ever notice, we often blame our circumstances for why we can't serve the Lord the way we should. We say things like, well, it's because I'm here. I'm stuck here. You know, I'm stuck at this job. I'm stuck in this office. Or, or I'm in this family. Uh, or I'm in these circumstances. And if all this external stuff were just changed, then I, then I could be the Christian that God wants me to be. And Paul says, can't think that way. The gap between the slave and the free was pretty wide. But God was able to bridge that gap. And if you're in any doubt about that, go home and read the little book of Philemon. You know that one? Read that as a cross-reference to this issue and see what Paul has to say about slavery to a slave and to his master. But we're we're not going to get into that this morning. Notice in verse 22, this paradox that he's drawing out here. The slave is free in Christ. The man who is free is actually Christ's slave. What's he saying here? The ultimate bondage is a bondage to sin. And when somebody who has been enslaved to sin is set free by the Lord Jesus, they actually become a slave of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying, it's kind of a humorous way that he's phrasing this, is we're all slaves. We're all slaves. Nowhere is that more clear than when Paul writes over in Romans chapter 6. Let me just read three verses, verse 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You you didn't do it. (laughs) But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Slave to sin, you live for sin. The result, you die. You go to hell. Verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Big change. Big difference. None of us will ever understand 
all of the nature of our freedom in Jesus until we come to understand the fact that we are now slaves in Christ. That's a, it's, it's an amazing paradox, and it's an important one for us to understand. Now in verse 23, he provides a little picture here. You were bought with a price. You say, that sounds familiar. That's right. Back in chapter 6, verse 20, he had already said it. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here he says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Now the people in Corinth would understand that. This is the way it worked in the, in the ancient world, in the first century. It was possible for a slave to buy their freedom. And the way that a slave could buy their freedom was by working another job on the side. Believe it or not, this is what happened. The, the small amount of free time that the master would give to the slave, they would go and do other jobs and receive some money. The master was able to take a percentage of what they made at the other job, but the rest the slave would keep. And the slave would take it to a temple. Didn't matter what temple, any temple, any god. And he would give that money to the priest, and the priest would begin accumulating that for him. And when he had managed over time to save up enough cash to purchase his freedom, he would take his master to that temple. The priest would hand over that money to the master And then the slave would symbolically become a slave of the God and no longer belong to his earthly master. A purchase, a transaction had taken place. The slave had been freed from his master and had become enslaved to the God of the temple. This is exactly the picture that Paul uses here, although he's applying it in Christian terms, not pagan terms, obviously. He knows they understand they have been bought. Not with gold or silver, right? First Peter tells us, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus shedding his blood, the result of that is they have been set free from all other enslavements. Most importantly, the slavery to sin and death. Verse 24, Paul comes full circle, comes back and restates his main point again. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In other words, this transforming power of Jesus. When you get saved, Jesus doesn't turn you into some discontented rebel discontented revolutionary out to overturn the system. The change that Jesus came to bring was first and foremost a change in the individual's hearts. Jesus didn't come to transform the Roman Empire, did he? If he did, he didn't do a very good job. The Roman Empire carried on a long time after Jesus. And was full of all kinds of paganism. Jesus came to transform individuals. The way that he reached the masses, you know, he didn't do like Benny Hinn. He didn't get his suit jacket out and start waving it around and slay everybody in the spirit all at once. 
No, no. Jesus reached the masses one by one by one by one. So when you and I have come to faith in Jesus, our responsibility does not somehow become to be some kind of revolutionary nuisance. We're out to change the systems. We're out to, to, we're out to, to get all of our people in Washington. That's our goal in life right now. I'm not saying it's bad to be involved. Hear me out. But generally speaking, Paul is saying, when you become a Christian, here's your job. Go back to your job, the one that's been assigned to you. Remain in the situation in which you find yourself. Stay in your marriage. Live in a way that demonstrates the radical difference that Jesus makes in your hearts. Religious and social barriers have been rendered null and void. And what is it that the church is to do with all of the pressing social and religious issues of our day? Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying we stick our heads in the sand. I can see just as well as all of you all the problems that are around us in the world. They've always been around us in the world, by the way. They're still there. We can see them clearly. It's on the news every day. So what is the church to do? Well, the church has been doing a lot of stuff. Some, some people would say the church has been getting involved. You know, we've been doing some marches and, you know, we, we've, uh, you know, we get involved in this big organization and, and we've gone to Washington and we've raised a ruckus there. And, you know, that's right. You know, a lot of the church has done things like that. We've done that many times over the last several decades. Is that what we're supposed to do? I'm going to ask the praise team to return for our final song. And as they're coming, let me try to answer that last question. Paul walks into the Corinthian context and he says, remember this? I'm not going to use human eloquence. I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm not going to try to take people on at their own level. I have one message. And my message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do you remember that? Chapter 1. When George Whitfield got on his horse and rode all over the eastern seaboard of the United States and down into Virginia and down into the Carolinas, what was he doing? Riling up, riling up the people? Getting them to overthrow the social institutions? The political institutions? He was proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ. Wesley became a part of that. John Wesley? What was he doing? Proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ. David Brainerd went, in, went down to the American Indians. What was he doing there? Proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ. William Carey went into India. Boy, they got all kinds of stuff going on over there. What's his message? He's proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is all we've been asked to do. And it is by that simple, powerful agenda that all of the distractions 
and social and religious activism lose their place, lose their significance. And the church has an opportunity to show our society the difference that the gospel makes. The church ought to be able to go out into the culture and say, come to our church and let us show you that it doesn't matter what race you are, what education you have, what status you have, it doesn't mean anything in the church. And you know the reason the church doesn't do that is because in a lot of places the church can't do that because they're compromised because they're trying to use the world's methods to accomplish something it was never intended to accomplish. And that should bring us to cry out to God, shouldn't it? To bring about a revival among the people of God, starting first in our hearts, our lives, our homes, our church, our city, Not that we go out and campaign to change all of the external stuff. It doesn't matter. The power of the gospel changes lives. All the external stuff will take care of itself after the inside gets right. As you and I go into our place of work tomorrow or whatever you have on your agenda for the week, maybe you'll remember 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. As you look at the pile of stuff on your desk and you think, here we go again. Remember, God sovereignly assigned you to that place. And there is work for Jesus there that only you can do. So remain with God. Stay obedient to Jesus' commands. Don't worry about trying to change all the external stuff. Pray that the Lord would do a transforming work of revival in people's hearts. The gospel can do that. We'll apply this more next week to singles and married couples again for our last message in 1 Corinthians 7. And I hope that you're noticing that even marriage and singleness, as great as those institutions can be individually, pros and cons, right? As great as they can be, it's not enough. If you find your identity in either your singleness or your marriage. It's in the wrong place. Our identity has to be only grounded in the Lord Jesus. We have to come to believe with all our hearts that he is enough. If everything else is gone, take the world. Give me Jesus. He is enough. This is what Paul wanted the Corinthians to figure out. It's what he wants us to figure out too.